heard a story by a father who, uh, who said the following. He said, my son called through years of drug abuse. He had stolen from our family. He had manipulated us. He had failed us. Honestly, it had been a relief not to hear from him for two full years. When he called me, he, he said that he'd been through a real rehabilitation program a year and a half ago that provided something no other program had offered. He said, I met Jesus Christ. I've been forgiven for my past. I want to ask you and mom to forgive me too. He said he was now helping other addicts get straightened out. The father says, I was torn between hope and cynicism. Been down this path before. Well, he said, the well-groomed, bright-eyed young man who arrived at the airport looked like a stranger. In the days that followed, he told how in the midst of drug withdrawal, he'd seen a vision of Jesus Christ on the cross, and he cried out to him for help. His withdrawal symptoms ended instantly. That experience had led him to a church. He said, I asked Jesus to be my Lord. And then he said, quietly, and my life hasn't been the same since. The change in our son, says this father, was too dramatic for my wife and me to ignore. Today, several years later, Jesus has given us the same new life that he gave to our prodigal son. I love stories like that. That is what Jesus does best. He changes lives. Do you you love those statements? The son's explanation, I met Jesus Christ. I've been forgiven for my past. His description of how he'd seen a vision of Jesus on the cross and cried out to him for help. And then the father's comment, Jesus has given us the same new life. Could the gospel be stated any more succinctly than that? Jesus is the only one that can forgive us for our sins, for our rejection of God, who made us for himself and we rejected him and then proceeded to make a mess out of life. And that forgiveness is real because he died on the cross specifically for that. And when we cry out to him for help, He does forgive, and he gives us a new life. And I think it's really important for us as we listen to the the text this morning to remember that this new life that Jesus gives, it starts the moment that we make a commitment to him. It starts the moment that we recognize our need of him. It is not something that we have to wait for. For sure, one of the dimensions of the new life is heaven. We understand that we are saved, that our our new destination for eternity is heaven. We're waiting for that. That's the experience of the new life that, that is not yet. But there's also a very present reality, a very present reality about the new life that God gives us that that we, quite frankly, must live into. And honestly, I I think our text speaks to a truth this morning that I just find fundamental 
to this, if we can really begin to understand this, I think it has the potential to, to rock our personal world and, and the world of, of those around us. Quite frankly, I think, I think this is probably the most important truth for us to understand as followers of Jesus. For way, way too many people who claim to be followers of Jesus, who claim to believe in Jesus, his resurrection makes very little difference in their lives on a daily basis. For some, his resurrection is only about heaven and eternity. And, and for sure, that's important. You know, where a person's going to spend their eternity is of ultimate importance. No argument there. But, but once our eternal destiny is settled, and God settles that, God settles that when we place our faith in His Son and His death and resurrection for us. Once that is settled, God has something more in mind because if He didn't, then all of us who are followers of Jesus would be gone. We'd be transported to heaven. Why are we still here? You know that answer, don't you? We are calling this Romans 8 study the So What series. Christ is risen. We celebrated on Easter. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. So what? What now? What next? What difference does it make? So what? Last Sunday we heard those amazing words from Paul that are probably familiar to many of us from the first verse of Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And remember that it's important we understand what Paul is saying from God's perspective. Because if we think in terms of, well, there's no condemnation for me who's lived a pretty decent life, we're missing the point. I can understand how there's no condemnation for someone like you, but for me, no. It's it's God's standard of holiness. We learned that Christ did what the law could not do. The law exposes the sin of the human heart, the sin of rebellion of the human heart, brings awareness of God's righteousness and His holy standard, but then what? People cannot change. They can go through motions. They can try harder. But there is not a a change of heart. And we have often said at Applewood that the heart of humanity's problem is the heart. That's where the problem lies. And so, remember we, we talked about condemnation. To be condemned is to be judged unfit for use because of a sinful heart. People are no longer fit for the use for which they were created. They were created to live in relationship with God. They were created in relationship to live for God, to live for His great glory. And enjoying His great glory and living for His great glory, there is great good for those who do that. How subtly we make that shift in Christendom that somehow God 
exists for us. Wrong. We exist for God. And the sin of rebellion which resides in the heart of every human being is that voice that says, I am the master of my own destiny. I know what's best for me. Thanks, God, for your offer, but I'll take care of it myself. That is the sin of rebellion. We were created for him, for his glory, to live for his glory, and in doing that, to enjoy great good for ourselves in relationship to him. And so Paul is amazed in Romans 8 at God's decision, we saw this last week, to do for him and for all of us what keeping the law could not do. God chose, because of his love, to make us righteous through the death and resurrection of his Son, Jesus Christ. That's the marvelous truth of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Thank you. Thank you for saying hallelujah. Someone's awake! Wow! We heard Paul last week say, Through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Set me free from the law of sin and death. We've been set free from what would kill us, both in this life and for all of eternity, so that we could now live the life for which we were created both in this life and for all of eternity. But remember, we're, we're tempted to sort of think of it as it's, it's heaven. I, I've, I've been given a new life for that life. No, I've been given a li- new life for this life, and it'll carry over into that life. One writer says, when grace introduces us to repentance, the two of us become best friends. I like that. When anything else introduces us to repentance... It feels like the warden has come to lock us up. But when grace gets involved, the truths of repentance reveal a fabulous world of life-freeing beauty. It's exactly right. And that is what Paul is talking about. That's what Paul is amazed about. Christ has set us free from the law of sin and death. He has set us free from the life that we lived without Him so that we can find fullness of life in living out the purpose for which we were created. For Him. That's what Christ has made possible on the cross. Christ is risen. So what? So everything has changed. So everything has changed for the one who professes faith in Jesus. So this morning we're going to learn what that that fundamental difference between those who have been set free by Christ and those who have not. And I've not told you that yet. I know you're listening and thinking, okay, what is it? What is it? We're going to read it. I don't know if it'll surprise you or not, but it's it's very, very significant. So let's stand this morning and read. We're going to read from Romans 8 again. And uh, we're going to start at verse 1 again, as we did last week. And uh, then we're going to add verses 5 to 8 this morning to our reading. So... Let's read together from Romans chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life 
has set you free from the law of sin and death. Yahoo! For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful humanity to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in human flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind controlled by the sinful nature is death. But the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Melanie, can we put verse 5 back up? I want, you to, uh, I want you to be able to see this verse. Read that through. Listen again to what Paul is saying. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. That verse is going to stay there. I want you to turn to a neighbor, and I want you to to talk about that for a moment and just put that in your own words. What is Paul saying? Talk about it with someone and just boil it down if you want. Make it a little more simple. It's pretty straightforward. What, What is he saying there? What is he saying? Okay, we're ready? All right, who wants to start us off? Un- unpack this. What's, what is Paul saying here? Come on, give a stab. Well, in like 
Come on, John, that's pretty impractical, don't you think? Good, thank you. What else? What else? What else? Your neighbor says? Okay, okay. Someone said that. Was that Shakespeare? <laughs> what else? What'd you hear? Greg? Okay. Okay. Setting your mind, Greg says, it's, it's an act of your will. But once you do that, then you're, you're going down that path. Now, there's truth there. We're going to hear Paul say something just a, a little bit. He's going to say that, but he, he adds a piece to it that I think is truly amazing for us. Anything else? Any other observations? Yes. Yes. But let me add this, and then we're going to jump into the language that Paul's using here. At least you can. And that's the fascinating thing that Paul's talking about here. The, the wording that he uses to have the mind set, okay, mind set on what the nature desires, that, that language carries with it the idea of being, for lack of a better word, obsessed self-absorbed. It is, it is the controlling thought. Listen to how John Stott, great theologian, describes the language here. He says, to set the mind on the desires of the flesh or spirit is to make them the absorbing object of thought, interests, affection, and purpose. It is a question of what preoccupies us. What are we thinking about when we wake up in the morning, John asked us, okay? It is a question of what preoccupies us, of the ambitions which drive us and the concerns which engross us, of how we spend our time and energies, of what we concentrate on and give ourselves to. To have one's mind set is a language of obsession. It is a language that drives us. We are, we are driven by life through what our minds are set on. Paul says that the sinful mind is hostile to God. A little bit further down, not in, in this verse. The sinful mind is hostile to God. Now listen closely. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Nor can it do so. Those controlled, Paul says, by the sinful nature cannot please God. They cannot please God. And the reason that they cannot, and here's what I want you to take home with you today. This is so fundamental to our understanding of what Paul is saying in this chapter. It'll unpack everything for us. The reason that they cannot is because they do not have the Spirit of God living in them. Did you get it? God's Spirit does not live in every human being 
on planet Earth. Every human being on planet Earth is made in God's image. They bear something of the image of God who has created them for himself. But the sinful human heart has gone its own way and the image is marred, the image is scarred, the image is broken. The Spirit of God does not live in the heart of every person on the planet. And where the Spirit of God does not live, those individuals are still living under the condemnation of God. Christ is risen. So what? Well, in addition to no longer living under the condemnation of our sin when we put our faith and our trust and our confidence in Christ, the Spirit moves in. The Spirit takes up residence in our lives. Paul tells the Ephesians that the Spirit is given to us as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, which is to come. The Spirit of God lives in us. Of course we know that, right? (laughs) Here's what we need to remember. Those who have been set free from the law of sin and death, and for whom there is now no condemnation by God, they now have the opportunity and the ability to live their lives according to the desires of the Spirit because the Spirit of God lives in them. This is amazing. You know, God doesn't just save us and say, go figure it out. He saves us. He's he's preserved His Word for us. And not only that, but he puts his spirit in us to empower us to live life for his glory. To live out the relationship for which we were created. Paul goes on to say in verse 9 that believers who are not controlled by the sinful nature, believers are not controlled, excuse me, by the sinful nature if the spirit of God lives in them. We'll look at that more closely next week together a little bit more specific, but the fundamental truth is that those who've been set free from the law of sin and death, those who've been forgiven of their sins in Christ, have been set free to live for God. This is so important. They now have the ability to choose life and to to live life before the Spirit of God lived in them, they couldn't do that. Do you, do you understand the significance of this? Do you understand how important this is? It, God does not grade on a curve. You know, God grades on the basis of whether a person accepts His grace in Christ Jesus. It's Christ's righteousness or it's nothing. And I want to suggest to you this morning that it's not, it's not how you live that identifies you as a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, before you stone me, let me clarify that, okay? It's, it's not how we live, at least not in the traditional way that we sometimes think 
I grew up in a church, and many of you did as well, where we had lists of activities that are permissible or not. For those who claim to be a Christian, they do this, and they don't do this. Christians are people who do not drink or smoke or chew, and they don't hang out with those who do. Could kind of sum up the background that I grew up in. Now, don't hear me saying that a follower of Jesus can live any way that they want. They can't. And in fact, they won't. When the Spirit of God takes up residence, things change. You think a bull in a china closet does damage. What kind of changes does the Spirit of the God of the universe do in a heart that has been full of clutter? It is spring cleaning time. Paul is saying that in our text, those who live in accordance with the Spirit of God have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. We need to hear that statement correctly. Paul is not saying that because we live a certain way, right living, correct living, if you will, according to someone's list, Because we live a certain way, the Spirit then causes us to to think that way. We sort of live ourselves into right thinking. That is not what he's saying. They are living the way that they do because the Spirit of God has moved into their lives and has taken over their thinking. Does that make sense? It's it's about the mind. It's, It's how we think. Those who have been given the Spirit of God to indwell them now have the choice for the first time in their lives to live in a way that pleases and calls attention to God. And it's so much bigger than what I do or what I don't do. Now, I know I'm famous for ranking on my dog over the years, but there's just no better example than my dog. You know, my dog does not lay out on the back step and compare his life to the neighbor's dog. I really don't think he does. I mean, show me the research. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think so. You know, he, he, just, he doesn't lay there and, and compare the life that the neighbor's dog has. Gee, I wish I could do that. I wish I could eat that. I, I wish they loved me, you know, like they... He doesn't do that. He's a dog. Before the Spirit of God inhabits the mind of an individual as a result of the grace that God has made possible because of Jesus on the cross, people think like my dog at best. I know that sounds terrible. Take, take it at, at just at face value, okay? I'm not saying people are dogs. But people, Paul is saying, they don't have the ability to think correctly. And immediately that brings us back to the lists. Well, well, there are people who live good lives. They live moral lives. They live clean lives. They don't smoke. They don't drink. They don't chew. And they don't hang with those who do. And God says, so what? Because they do not have the Spirit of God indwelling them, they do not think Godward. They do not think God-focused 
things. They do not have the ability to think about God as God desires and deserves to be thought about by those whom he has created. You okay with this? Are you with me so far? So, when the Spirit of God, which is the Spirit of life that Paul is talking about in Romans, when that Spirit comes into a person's life, they have the ability for the first time in their lives to live unselfish lives. Now, now hang with me here a minute. To live God-focused lives because the Spirit lives in us, empowering us to think correctly about God and our relationship to Him. A God-focused life brings life and peace. A self-focused life brings more sin and more death. Even though persons may live what appears to be a very other-focused life, they give themselves, they care for others, they love others. What Paul is saying here is that if God is not in the equation, then it is idolatry. What we give ourselves to determines whom our heart belongs to. And God has to be in the equation because He is God and because He is Creator and because He made us for Himself. Let me tell you about my son Jeremy and his first ice cream cone. Many years ago, Jeremy, as you've probably heard us say over the years, had a tendency towards hard-headedness, stubbornness. In fact, wasn't sure he would live to see his fifth birthday. (laughs) Age four was the year from hell with Jeremy. I can say this because he's not here. (laughs) But he knows it's true. But anyway, oh, how old was he when he had his first ice cream cone at the park? Yeah, oh yeah, no, he was very young. Maybe two to three, somewhere in there. He was working his way into that fourth year. And... And I'll I'll never forget, you know, my wife would just offer to take his little cone that is in his hot, sweaty little hand on this hot, humid day in western Massachusetts, and the ice cream is just running everywhere, all over his cone. His hand is obviously a sticky mess, but do you think that she could pry that cone from his hand just just to wipe his hand off and to clean up his cone a little bit? Oh, no. Oh, no. It was an ugly, ugly scene. There stood Jeremy, screaming at the top of his lungs, No! My cone! My cone! It's his mother, for crying out loud. You know, it's not a criminal who's come to rob him of his cone. She's just going to help him clean it up. That is, in some ways, a picture of humanity clinging to everything that is wrong and railing at God because it's not going the way that it should. Blaming God, mad at God, because He's not coming through for us. Do you see how important this is? Paul is saying people live that way because they can't help but live that way. That is the way that their minds are set because of the sin nature that has taken control of their hearts and and of their thinking process. The Spirit of God does not prompt or promote or empower that kind of thinking. Thinking like that, people still have their minds set on what the sinful nature 
desires. The distinguishing feature of a person who is a follower of Jesus Christ and who no longer stands under the condemnation of God is the person whose life is surrendered to the leadership of the Spirit of God. Now, if your mind works like mine, (laughs) I hope it works better than mine, but if it kind of tracks along the same direction, then you begin to think, whoa, this is really serious stuff. So, So when have I crossed the line? I want to suggest to you that the Spirit of God, if we are willing to open ourselves up in daring fashion on a daily basis, fill me to overflowing as we sang together, the Spirit is more than willing to open our eyes to the truth of how we are idolaters and how we are self-worshipping people and how we put all kinds of stuff and individuals on the altar of worship in our lives. That is, that is the role, that is the presence, that is the job, if I can use that crass term, of God's Spirit. Who am I to tell the Spirit what His job is? But, but that's what we read in Scripture. Jesus said to His disciples, they're sad about Him leaving, and He said, oh, let me tell you, it's good I'm going away. His disciples must have thought, what's the matter with Him? It's good I'm going away. John 14, if I don't go, the Spirit of God will not come to you. Wow. Just for a couple of minutes, go to another passage of Scripture with me. You remember Acts chapter 1. We mentioned this briefly last week, where where Jesus said to his disciples, he he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the, the ends of the earth. Does anybody know what the root word for witness is in the original language? Ever come across that or discover that in your studies? The original word has the same root as the word martyr. Jesus said, you will be my martyrs. Now, think back to the Gospels when he said, the only time that he ever made a requirement... The only time that he ever put it in these words, anyone who wants to be my follower must do what? Deny self. Take up your cross. That's not the piece that you hang around your neck. It's the thing you die on. Follow Jesus. You see where this takes us? The Spirit of God comes to empower God's people so that they can live a life of death to self. Because the people who are still under the condemnation of God, though their lives may look to us to be virtuous examples of what humanity ought to be, if God does not occupy the throne of their lives, they are in fact idolaters. And Paul says they cannot help be what they are because their minds are entrenched in that. This is so significant, my friends. You know, I, we understand, those of us who have been around the church for a long time, around Christian theology for a long time, you know, well, we're saved and, and whoop-de-doo, we have the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and we give it about that much thought. The power and presence of God lives in you if you are a follower of Jesus. And He gives you the opportunity and the power and the ability to live a life that brings glory to God 
in everything that you say, everything that you do. It's not keeping a list and how much can I get away with and still get into the pearly gates. It's, wow, look what God has done for me. And in response to that, bring it on, Spirit. Live in me the way that you want. Push me in the directions that you want. Ask of me anything that you want because I no longer live under the condemnation of God and I'm yours. Let's go. That's what Paul's talking about here. That's what Paul's talking about here. Praise team, come on up. And we'll do more with this next Sunday, I I promise. We're going to say more about the greatest evidence that, that the Spirit of God is present in our lives, I think has to do with, I, I'm just calling them four Ps, our understanding and living out the, the place, the priority, the purpose, and the pleasure of God in our lives as seen through Jesus' example. That's what the Spirit comes to do. The Spirit doesn't come to help us live our life of choosing. You know, the, the, the Spirit doesn't come alongside and pat us on the head or the shoulder and say, you know, that, that's, that's a nice idea. Why don't you pursue that? That'll serve you well in life. The Spirit of God comes along to, to, to expose the idolatry and the crud that's in us and then remind us of Jesus and empower us to live as He lived a God-centered, God-focused life. Can I give you a daring assignment? And then I'm going to sit down, I promise. A daring assignment? If you dare, have a conversation with someone this week who knows you well. Someone who knows you well and ask them to rate your obsession with Jesus Christ. Ask them to rate your obsession with Jesus Christ. Because remember, that's, that's, that's the language that Paul's using here. The mind that is set on the Spirit is obsessed with the Spirit and obsessed with the life of Jesus. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being completely obsessed, bonkers about Jesus, ask them where you fall on that scale and ask them why they put you there. Talk with them about that. Amen.